and uh, two of the evenings were canceled due to weather, and uh, so it's quite a bit different outside right now. Um, I feel like I almost need the review because it was that long ago, but I'm gonna try not to do that. So I'll probably touch on a few things, uh, but we're gonna pretty much go uh, forward from here. And so tonight, uh, I wanna talk about living the story. So last, uh, well, almost said last year. Well, in the winter, we talked about uh, God's story in education. And I'm using the word story very, very uh, carefully. And, it, and I'm using the word story because scripture is ultimately a story. And so I'm using it intentionally because I want you to think about it in that way for our purposes in this subject. And so we also want to think about the challenges of tomorrow as it relates to education and passing on the faith. So I would like to begin uh, by asking you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 78. You may recall that I referenced this several times. Psalm 78 is written by Asaph, and for me, I feel like it is Asaph's philosophy of education. And I think as, as Christians, we need to come back to this repeatedly and get our point of reference right here. This is what Christian education is all about. So I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to the law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open... My mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength. The praises of the Lord and his strength. That's the stories of God. God's interventions in history to bring about his purposes. Okay, so we're thinking about the praises of the Lord, his strength, his wonderful works that he hath done. Verse 5, for he has established a testimony in Jacob. What's a testimony? It's a story. God has established a testimony in Jacob, in the nation of Israel. He's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he hath commanded our fathers that they should make them known make them known to their children. And other parts of the Bible talk about how to make them known. Deuteronomy 6 talks about how to make this story known. But it is our responsibility to make the story known. Verse 6, so that the generation to come might know them. So that the generation to come might know them. The story. Even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. Do you see his vision? It's a long-range vision. Asaph's thinking about generations down the road. We want to make the story known so well today that the children which aren't even born yet will tell the same story and tell it well to the generation of theirs till they, till they pass it on. So that's our philosophy of education. What is Christian education all about? What's the point of Christian education? 
It's about making the story known. So we'll come back to that a little later. I have a picture up here of puzzle pieces. And uh, I don't know if you enjoy puzzles or not. I do not like puzzles. But um, puzzles are made up of all these pieces. And in and of themselves, each piece is somewhat meaningless. But each piece doesn't really capture a picture of anything. It doesn't present a picture of anything. But when you take all the pieces and you put them together, it creates a picture. And often it's a, it's a pretty picture. In the same way, each one of us are like those individual pieces of the puzzle. Like that, we are somewhat meaningless and irrelevant all by ourselves. But it's when we come together and find ourselves in context of something much larger that we begin to have meaning and purpose. I point this out because in our culture, there is a lot of emphasis on telling your story. Have you heard that? You need to tell your story. And I want to suggest that it's not so much my story that's important as it is our story. You see the difference? We're part of a bigger story. It's not about just me, my little story. My little story makes no sense if it's ripped out of the context of the bigger overarching story of God. And so we need to realize that you and I, we together, are part of a much bigger story, the story of God. And one of the reasons that we have confusion and chaos in the world is because people have essentially tried to rip themselves out of the bigger story. And they're trying to shrink everything down to something really small. And when they do that, it becomes meaningless. Life becomes meaningless. And so you may remember I talked about Christian, the pilgrim, the traveler, the one that walked the journey with a burden on his back and a book in his hand. And you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress. The book makes all the difference. The book's a very important part of the, of the journey. And it's still that way today. The book makes all the difference. We have been known as people of the book and we need to continue being known as people of the book. We follow the book. And so making the story known, following the book. The book makes all the difference. Uh, real quickly, you may remember this diagram from Winter Bible School. We talked about the overarching story. We said that the story starts with a prologue. Uh, in Genesis, we're introduced to the characters uh, paradise, okay, the Garden of Eden, and everything's introduced. God declares that everything is what? It's all good. Everything he made was good, it's all good. And then Satan comes along and suggests 
that there's a little bit of goodness outside of God's plan was a lie. All sin is based on lies. At the root of every sin is a lie. And at the root of every temptation is a lie. But Adam and Eve take the bait, they bite, and they believe that maybe there's a little bit of goodness outside of God's plan, and we have the crash. And it wasn't just a fall. We often talk about sin as the fall, but it was a crash. It was a cosmic crash because it turned the whole world upside down. Things don't work the way they are supposed to anymore. We live in a world of confusion, a world of pain, a world of suffering. And sin doesn't just affect the core of who I am. It, it, it impacts the thoughts that I think. It impacts my physical body. It impacts my relationships. It impacts the world around me. Um, and so sin has brought the whole entire cosmos under its influence but at the crash God gave a promise he said the seed of the woman is going to stamp the head of the serpent he promised a deliverer and from that point on the rest of the story starts moving towards the climax the whole way through they begin looking for this person this person and you can almost feel it or hear it as, the, as they read the genealogies, for instance. Um, is, it, is this the deliverer? Is this, is this a person? And it's not. Always says, he died. He died. But they keep waiting. When's the deliverer coming? And expectation continues to grow the whole way through the Old Testament. And so the promise is given, the action is rising, until finally a man named Simeon is standing at the temple and he's holding this baby in his arms and he says, mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. He got it. Simeon understood that at the center of the biblical story is a person the person of Jesus Christ. Simeon understood that the whole entire story of the Bible was moving towards the person of Christ, and he got it. And so we know that Christ then died on the cross. I would say that that's the climax of the story. Then we have a second climax when uh, Christ returns for the crowning and the consummation of all things, and then the end of the story. I want to say one more thing here. At the center of this story is a person. And the whole entire scripture, all the, all the scriptures, the whole entire Bible moves towards that person. But there's something else going on. And that is, not only is there a person at the center of the story, but there is a group of people that are called out that Christ is forming in himself, the church. And so um, we could talk a lot about that, uh, but it's the person of Christ and the community of God, the community of saints that Christ is forming in himself at the center of the story. 
And so a lot of times we take the scriptures and we say, well, that's Old Testament, New Testament. We're people of the New Testament. That's true. But we need to understand that it's all one story. Two parts, but it's all one story. It's all connected. It all flows together. And we need to take the entire story. And so when I talk about making the story known, I'm talking about teaching our children to see all of life in context of this story. Because this story is still taking place. You and I are part of this story. Where are we right now? We're somewhere waiting for the second climax, right? We're waiting for the crowning. This is a real story. It's the truest of all stories. And everything else finds its meaning in this context. When we take ourselves and try to rip ourselves out of this story, it results in much confusion and complexity. And so we want to teach our children, teach everyone to see life in the light of this story, in this context. With that in mind, I'd like to uh, jump to uh, Romans chapter 1. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. So we want to think a little bit about living, living the story. Living the story. And so Romans chapter 1, I think that Paul does a really, really good job here of revealing what happens when people disconnect from God's story, when they rip themselves out of context. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. They professed themselves to be wise and they became fools. They professed themselves to be wise, they became fools. Okay, we lean on man's understanding. We think that we have the answers and explanations for life. So we lean on humanity, human reason, rather than on the truth of God. And look what happens. They change the the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so when we turn away from God, when we rip ourselves out of God's story, it often starts very rational, okay? People will claim to be rational in doing this. And so if you're not going to worship God, who are you going to worship? What are you going to worship? Well, the people choose to turn to uh, it says images made like to corruptible men. So maybe there's other human beings that are worth worshiping. So that's what they started with. But with time, they went to beasts like, you know, lions, and elephants, and animals that are very large and strong. 
And then they went to uh, fowls of the air, um, birds, things that soar in the heavens, you know, like eagles, things that seem to have a connection to the heaven and earth. And then it says they, they finally ended up with creeping things, um, and uh, it seems to imply that it would be like um, uh, small little critters. And so when we yank ourselves out of God's story, it always starts very rational, but it ends in absurdity, okay? And so we need to keep that in mind. Um, I want to suggest three things real quickly that happen when we disconnect from God's story that we see in Romans chapter 1 here. The first thing is that the creation is elevated over the creator. When we disconnect from God's story, you can always guarantee that the creation gets elevated over the creator. And we start taking creation and putting it up. The second thing you can always guarantee is that people lose their God consciousness. And if you turn ahead to verse 28, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they did not want to retain God in their knowledge. People lose God consciousness. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that they go about their life as if God doesn't exist. They're not conscious of him. Now, they might say they believe in God. They might say they believe in him. But in their actions of daily life, he has no bearing. Does that make sense? That's the difference between like an atheist and a practical atheist. A practical atheist is somebody who just lives as if there is no God. They might even say there is one, but they live as if there is no God. And so they lose their God consciousness. They lose their identity. They fail to realize who they are in relation to God. So um, my father died of cancer in 2007. And I still know my, who my dad was, right? But I am less and less, how should I say this? I, I don't see myself in, a, in daily life as much as my father's son as I would have at before he was dead or while he was still living. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, I'm not as conscious of that anymore. I, he's been gone for over 10 years. Well, when people disconnect from God's story, they lose their God consciousness. And the third thing that happens is confusion, okay? Complexity and confusion. You'll notice um, it says, uh, for this cause, verse uh, 26, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men. And you keep reading down through his, here and all of a sudden you notice all the confusion that takes place. And that's what happens when we disconnect from God's story. So how do we disconnect from God's story? This is a question I want to spend a little bit of time exploring. How do we disconnect from God's story? Um, I want to suggest four, four ways that we essentially unplug ourselves from God's story. The first one is that we miss the point. Missing the point. Okay. Now, I already talked about what is the point. What's the point of the story? It's about the person of Christ. But it is so easy for you and I to miss 
the point of it all. And we forget that at the center of this biblical story is a person. And while we can't hold him in our arms today and say, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, we can hold him in our hearts and we can have that relationship with Jesus. But it is so easy to get caught up with Christian living and forget the person. And there's a fine balance there, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's so easy to get caught up with all the day-to-day parts of the Christian living and forget the person. And so one of the ways we disconnect from the story of God is when we forget the person. Now, I think this is important because if you read Hebrews 11, you, you see very clearly that the people of faith were embracing the promise. It says they saw the promise afar off. Well, what's a promise? It was Christ, the person. They saw it afar off. They kept it in the forefront of their thinking and their minds. They got it. But when the people of God, the Israelites, when they disconnected from God's story, they continued doing the law. They continued doing the ceremonies, but they forgot the promise. They missed the point. And it caused them to... um, deviate from God's will and plan. And I think the same thing can happen for us today. And so we want to be very, very careful that we get the person. The second thing that can happen when we disconnect from God's story is that we, we begin making our walk with Christ a private affair. We begin making our walk with Christ a private affair. God's people have always lived together in community. God's people have always practiced the faith in community. And that has not changed. But today, there's a lot of Christians who will say that they can live the faith privately as individuals. And so... um, a number of years ago, I got a telemarketer on the phone, and uh, it was one of the times when I was, I don't know, um, had a little more time and, and felt like uh, seeing how far I could go with this person. And uh, so I started chatting with him, and, and uh, finally I just said, sir, are you a Christian? He said, I am. I said, well, that's wonderful. I said, so are you, what kind of Christian group do you uh, worship with? Oh, I'm not with any group. I said, okay, well, tell me more. I said, like, do you go to church? No, I I don't go to church, he said. I said, okay. Um, Why don't you go to church? Well, he said, because of Christ, I can have a relationship with God all by myself. Um. He said, I don't need to go to church. And he went off explaining this. And do you know that that kind of thinking is pretty popular today? But I want to suggest that it doesn't work because, yes, we have a relationship with Christ, 
a personal relationship with Christ. But Christ also makes himself available to us through the church. And we fellowship with Christ with other saints. We meet Christ with other saints. The church is a body made up of many members, right? And so it's very important to understand that the, our relationship with God is not a private thing. It's not a private thing. Therefore, uh, we need to learn how to journey through life together. We need to learn how to walk arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, to do discipleship together. We need to learn how to be accountable to each other, how to open up and be transparent. And in our culture of individuality, um, that's very difficult to do. Uh, but the people of God have done this, and we need to continue to do this. Um, but again, I want to suggest that when we get to a place where we begin pulling away from the church, and we begin to see ourselves as my relationship with God is a private thing, and I don't need to share with others, I, need, I don't need to talk about that. When we begin to get to that place, we begin disconnecting from God's story. And so God's story um, is about the church, um, and it's a public walk with a community of disciples, and we need to keep that in mind. A third thing um, that can quickly happen is we get distracted by secondary callings. Now, what do I mean by secondary callings? Well, our primary calling, our primary calling is by God, to God, and for God. My primary calling is to love God, to know God, and to worship God, to enjoy God, to find my rest and peace in God. That is my primary calling. Primary callings, or my primary calling, our, our primary calling is all the same uh, for all of us, but primary callings always result in secondary callings. And so secondary callings uh, could involve our, our careers, our um, our occupations um, could involve our family. It could involve uh, a missions trip. Um, it can involve all these other things. But what can quickly happen is that we get distracted by those secondary callings. We become busy fulfilling those secondary callings that we forget our primary calling. How do we disconnect from God's story? We disconnect when we forget that my primary calling is to love God, know God, worship God, and enjoy God. Let me give you an example of how this can flesh out in my life. I'm a teacher. I'm a Bible teacher. I really enjoy teaching. And uh, some time ago, uh, I was... I uh, was talking with uh, an older man that acts as a mentor to me. And uh, I was sharing about how I felt like life had become a little stagnant. And uh, I realized that for me, a lot of my Bible reading was focused on how I was going to take the scriptures and teach. 
Do you see what's happening? I was approaching the scriptures through my secondary calling. And uh, this, this older brother said, you're missing something. He said, you are a direct consumer and you need to get into the word of God for yourself and put aside that secondary calling. Now it's hard with my role, but all of a sudden it clicked because I had kind of gotten away from that. I had, without realizing it, got distracted and I started to pull out of God's story. A fourth way that we disconnect from God's story is by shrinking our lives down. Shrinking our lives down. What do I mean by that? Well, our lives uh, were given purpose by God to be part of God's kingdom. You and I were all created by God. We were given calling. We have a calling by God. We've been gifted by God. But we've, we have shrank life down in so many ways. We've shrank life down to something small so that it's about us. It's about me. And when we shrink life down to something that is just this small, it becomes very empty and it's not fulfilling. And so um, maybe one way to think about this is how I think we've lost the connection between calling and career and between uh, careers and giftings. I don't know if you've thought about this at all, uh, but the gifts that God has given to the church, I don't think are intended for Sunday mornings only. I think God has given gifts to his people, and I think that those gifts are, ex God intends for us to use them in our occupations. The church is a body that isn't only active on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights or when we gather, but it's active all the time. But I, I think sometimes that we've, we've, we've uh, kind of shrunk life down and we've disconnected some things. And so our young people end up getting jobs that are available, make good money, fits, we go for it, we do it, we get stuck into that. And it's not the one thing that they were designed for. Now, I might be wrong. Um, but I think that I know too many people who are just so busy trying to find meaning in daily life. Life is empty. And uh, I'm just suspicious that maybe, maybe we've lost the connection between calling and career, giftings and career. And so let's not shrink life down. We were made for something bigger, God's kingdom. And we have a part to play, every single one of us. And uh, maybe as a church body, we need to work harder at finding everybody's place in that kingdom. Maybe it needs to be more of a community effort. So we want to live for something bigger than our own little kingdom. We already talked about this, the results of disconnecting. Uh, we said it results in the creation being elevated over the creator. It results in the loss of God consciousness, and it results in the growing confusion and complexity in the world. 
I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about uh, the challenges of making the story known in the future. I want to talk about the challenges that I see in uh, Christian education in the future. And before I do that, I'm just going to ramble a little bit. Uh, I'm going to reflect a little bit on some changes that have taken place. Now, as I do this, please don't think that I am making it sound like the good old days were good old days. I'm not saying that. Um, I have no problem with the present. I enjoy the present. Um, presence, present's great. But I just want to reflect a little bit to help us think about change. And so to, it's July 28th, 2019, and uh, things are not the way they used to be. There's a man who says, not, not wrong, just different. And I was saying tonight, not, it's not like it's a wrong thing. It's, it's just, it's a, different, it's a different era, time. I grew up in a home that never owned a computer. How many of your homes have computers in? Raise your hands. All right. I grew up in a home that never had a computer. We got a word processor, and that was big stuff. I don't know if any of you even know what a word processor is. It was a brother word processor. And you could pretty much type reports out for school, but that was about it. And so we got one of them. It, when I got married and left the home, left the, my parents' home, they finally got a computer for my younger siblings. But uh, I missed out on it. And so um, when, when I was 16, if, if uh, someone would have told me to Google it, I would have thought that's something that people do in the kitchen. I mean, I don't, what would you have thought? How do you Google something? Like, you shake it in a pan? Like, what do you do? Google it. Uh, now, everybody says Google it, and everybody knows what they mean. Things have changed. Um, when, when I was uh, 16, I couldn't wait to get a car. I was looking forward to getting my license and getting a car. And uh, I realized recently that uh, there are young people who are more excited about getting a cell phone at 16 than a car. Have you noticed this? Some things have really changed. I did not have a cell phone uh, until I was 27 years old, I think. When my dad got cancer and he was going for treatments, I decided I better get a phone so I could communicate with him at, at any time. And uh, up until that point, I, I didn't have a cell phone. We actually made it. Um, I remember my friends and I, we would talk. Wednesday night church, we would make plans. You know, Friday night, we're going to meet at such and such a place, such and such a time. And we did. We showed up. We met there, and it all worked. Uh, my parents taught us what to do, you know, if we're driving and we have a flat tire or something goes wrong, you know, we'll be okay. They taught us what to do, and uh, it, it all worked out okay. Um, so uh, we were home a lot. My, as I thought about it, my parents, um, we spent at least two to, th two to three evenings a week home, I think if I'm correct in my memory. Um, people are really busy today. I don't know if you've noticed this. People are really busy. 
And uh, I remember going to um, my grandparents' house. We, would, we wouldn't even call them. We'd just go because it was kind of a known thing that they'd be home. And so we'd go to my grandparents' house and we'd often find them sitting on the porch. And so we'd sit on the porch with them. Um, does this happen yet? Much? Some? I don't know. Uh, things have changed. My, my grandparents, all of my grandparents grew up on a farm. All of them. All of my wife's grandparents grew up on a farm. None. Yes. Okay, one. One of my uh, children's grandparents have grown up on a farm. So we've had a, a little bit of a transition, haven't we? Um, things have transitioned. We're, we're not on farms like we used to be. Things have changed in that way. Uh, I think that my, uh, my stepdad is a dairy farmer, and he sometimes talks about how growing up, uh, his dad would take a whole bunch of the boys and he'd say, all right, we're going out, we're going to be working, and he'd go along. And uh, I didn't grow up that way. Um, my dad would leave generally at 6 a.m. in the morning, and I wouldn't see him till 5.30 in the evening, and that was pretty consistent my whole childhood. Um, things have changed. Not wrong. I think it's, it's just a different era of time. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things that has really changed us is technology. I, I think if we're honest, that's just really changed things. I don't know if we completely realize the significance that technology has played. I don't think we, I don't know if we even comprehend the change that's taken place. Um, I think there's a revolution maybe taking place. A friend of mine says he thinks it's going to be, looking back, a greater revolution than even uh, print when the printing press uh, was invented. I, um, and so there's a transition that's taken place. It was a revolution of sorts. And I don't know if we completely comprehend uh, what's even all taking place. Um, Things are different, and uh, it's not wrong, it's just different. Uh, we have already adjusted, I think, to a lot of these changes. We've adjusted, I think we've adapted, and uh, at the same time, I think we need to think about how we're going to make the story known. How does this all impact education? How are we gonna make the story known to future generations as it changes our family, as it changes our churches, as it changes the way we interact uh, as individuals? Um, I guess as I think about all these changes, one big thing that seems pretty clear to me is that the cultural voices that are beckoning for the attention of our children are louder and more pervasive than they've ever been before. Would you agree with that? I think that is probably the case. And so in the past, we successfully lived separated lives to a degree, and it worked. Our, our methods that we used in the past 
I don't think, are working as well as they did in the past. And I think that the cultural voices are pushing in on us and they are telling our children a new identity. They are providing a new identity for our children. And they are calling for our children to step out of God's story. Okay. They are calling for our children to step out of God's story. And so, all of a sudden, we have a much bigger responsibility, I think, in teaching than what we have maybe in the past. We've often called Christian education the arm of the church. And as I think about that, I, I think about the arm being something very, very important, right? It's the arm of the church. It's, it's pretty important. You know, your arm's pretty important. But I also realize that the arm is something you can cut off and push aside and you can get by. And I'm not sure if we can get by in the future without Christian education done really, really well. I'm not sure we can get by. I'm thinking that Christian education is more one of the vital organs of the church today than of what it was maybe 50 to 100 years ago. Christian education is very, very important in the life of the church. If we want to do well at making the story known to the next generation, we gotta think about doing Christian education really well. So, I wanna think a little bit about some of the challenges that I see on the horizons or some of the challenges maybe we're facing right now. And uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, do not judge a day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Do not judge a day by the harvest you reap, but the seeds that you plant. I just want to say that I think we live in a great day. I, I feel like we have been so blessed, and I have been so blessed. I, I was privileged to receive a Christian education, and uh, I was able to go to... Um, uh, Bible Institute, Sharon Mennite Bible Institute. Um, there were other, uh, other schoolings that I was able to pick up along the way. I feel so blessed. And I know that a lot of you uh, feel the same way. I feel, it seems like we can look around and we can say, you know what? We, we just are reaping a lot of blessings right now. But let's be careful that we don't grow satisfied. And that we don't somehow say, hey, this is great. Look at the blessings we're reaping and forget to think about the generations to come. And so we want to be careful that we don't forget to think about seed planting in the future so that generations to come can reap the same kinds of blessings. So what are some of the challenges that I see on the horizons? Well, um, I'll just acknowledge that some of this is shaped by my own experience and my own context. And so uh, I am, I have been involved in Christian education for 18 years uh, as a teacher at Terry Hill Mennonite High School. And so some of my perspective 
uh, comes out of that experience. Maybe your experience is different. And uh, maybe, maybe you see things a little differently, and that's, that's fine. But what I'm saying now is coming out of my, my experience. One of the challenges that I see, maybe the first one, is transitioning ownership of education. Transition, transitioning ownership of education, rebirthing the vision. Um, so Terry Hill is, is uh, this is, I guess, it's going to be our 35th or 36th anniversary this year. Um, but as I look back, um, well, actually, there was a book written. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but a man from our school named Daniel Zimmerman wrote a book about the history of Terry Hill and how it all came to be. And I was, as I was reading through some of that book, it was talking about the men who had a vision for this, this school and the time they put into it, the money they put into it, all the energy they, I mean, they put in lots of time, money, and energy. And as I was reading about that, it all of a sudden dawned on me that a lot of those men were in their mid-30s. Now, as I look around, I feel like a lot of the vision in our community is still with that age group but they've just continued getting older. I might be wrong. I don't know your church. I don't know your community that well. But where are the younger men with the vision to sacrifice to make it happen for future generations? See, I'm in my upper 30s now, and I feel like I'm just kind of riding along, enjoying the blessing. I'm enjoying the blessing. I'm enjoying the sacrifice of the older men and their vision. And I'm starting to say, wait a minute. Like, I need to get involved with thinking about this very carefully. Where are we going in the next 30 to 40 years? And so again, I don't know your community well enough to know whether that's true or not. But just like a family business has to go through a transition and the next generation needs to embrace it and capture a vision for it and make it happen, I think we are looking at some of the same things in Christian education. The Christian education movement is really not that old of a movement, is it? If you look at it from a historical perspective. And so I think this is something to think about. Um, a second challenge is career teachers and uh, faith builders did a little bit of a, a survey or research project a couple years ago and uh, they were surveying some of the needs and challenges of Christian schools and then they created a report and uh, if you're interested in that you can get your hands on that report somewhere I'm sure um, but the number one need that came out was teachers career teachers and so um, curriculum's important uh, tools are important technology is important resources are important but the teacher in our school is the most important that's the most important part of our educational program and I cannot 
overemphasize how important the person we set in front of our little people is. Uh, some of you might know the name Melvin Lehman. Melvin Lehman teaches at Faith Builders. And uh, I heard Melvin say years ago, he said, a man needs to teach for about 10 years before they can start to make any difference. And I was just beginning at that time, and I was kind of discouraging. Like, oh, you got to teach 10 years before you can make a difference. I don't think the number's that important, 10. But I think what Melvin was trying to say is that when you can make education a career and you can stay plugged in, it's in the long haul where you really have impact. And the longer that I've been in education, I've, I've started to understand what, what Melvin meant when he said that. And so I think we need career teachers. Um, real impact does not happen until a teacher can plug in for the long haul. Uh, we need teachers of excellent character. Um, students are looking for role models, and I see this all the time. We need teachers of excellent character. We also need teachers that know their content. We need teachers that are prepared. So just think with me about this for a moment. We sometimes talk about the second law of thermodynamics, you know, how energy um, in a system um, will always be less and less than that of its initial state. And so think, just think with me. If a sixth grader teaches an, another sixth grader, and then that sixth grader teaches another sixth grader, and then that sixth grader teaches another sixth grader, and you keep going, when you get to the end, will that last sixth grader have a sixth grade education? Probably not. We need teachers of excellent character. We also need teachers that are prepared to stand in front of the students and teach, teach well. We need to prepare them. Now, whose responsibility is this? I think that we as a church, we as a community, need to assume this responsibility. We talked about it. We said that this passing on the story, making the story known to the next generation is so important. It's a vital part of the church. And so somehow we need to capture a vision for getting involved and making this a priority as a church. Um, now, a third challenge that I see is competing with businesses for our finest, finest people. So I said we need people of excellent character and we need people, I'll just take it one step farther, we need people who can communicate well and think well. And guess what? All of you men who have businesses, those are the kinds of people you probably want too. And what I see happening is that some of our finest young men and women coming out of the classroom um, or coming out of school, um, our, our businesses, we go after them and uh, we want them badly. And we can offer to pay them money they will never make in a classroom. The unfortunate thing about this is, is that as schools, I think that sometimes we're struggling to find the finest young men and women in the community. 
So what's the solution for this? Well, uh, you need to think about that. Um, maybe the solution is to uh, pay them better wages, or maybe the solution is as a church family, be thinking hard about this and saying, who are our finest men and women? Who is it that we want training the next generation? Who is it that we want our children to be like? Who is it that we want to be the role models? And then maybe get behind them and say, hey, we want you to think about doing this long term. Not a year, not two, not three, but long term. And we'd like to help you prepare for this journey because it's gonna be a challenge. Teaching is difficult. Um, some years ago, I read a survey and I don't remember what context it was. I think it was in a, in a public school setting, but the average uh, career of a, of a teacher was four years because of burnout. It's tough. Teaching is, is very difficult. It's very personal, it's very draining, and uh, burnout is a real thing for teachers. Uh, the better you are prepared, the better you are prepared, the less likely, I think, uh, that burnout will be a result. And so, um, a number of years ago, we were trying to recruit uh, uh, some pe a, a person or people for a position in school. And uh, I, for I don't know how many contacts I made, but I made so many contacts. And pretty consistently across the board, every person said, you know what, let me pray about it, and I'll get back to you. So, which I knew was pretty much, no, I shouldn't say that. So they, they prayed about it, got back to me, and pretty consistently across the board, they said, you know what, I feel called to what I'm doing. And uh, I thought, well, that's great. That is great. But I also knew that in every single case, the men that I was contacting would have needed to make substantial sacrifices to come into the classroom. Um, what are we doing about this? Uh, I think this has been a problem. Um, I don't have uh, an easy answer. If I did, I would be presenting it. Uh, but it's something I think we need to think about because um, our finest young people are being drawn into the business world. We're losing them when we could really use them in our own community, uh, making us stronger. Fourthly, um, church is cultivating a vision for young people. I'm not going to say as much about this tonight, uh, but I think that I said the, the cultural voices are louder and permeate, perme, uh, permeating more than they ever did before. And they're calling for our children to unplug from God's story. They're trying to suggest a new identity for them. And I think that we need to talk more about our expectations as a church. And I sometimes feel like the school, schools, are maybe absorbing too much of this. Um, I think maybe churches need to get more involved in these discussions, talking about what is our vision for our young people? What are the experiences that we want them to have? What are the books that they should be reading? Where are the places that they should be serving? And we need to talk about this as church families and get more involved in the discussion at that level and let it trickle down to the schools. And then finally, the fifth challenge that I see 
is what I call uh, cultural cosmetic expressions of faith. Now, cosmetic refers to surface. And uh, so what do I mean by these cultural cosmetic expressions of faith? I guess I'm referring to Western pop Christian styles and languages. Um, modern uh, popular Christianity has a culture all of its own. Okay? And because of the influence of the media on us, I think without realizing it, we are slowly embracing more and more of those expressions. And so we are growing more and more content with an image-based Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, we are getting better and better at presenting ourselves in a certain way and being involved in certain activities, um, doing certain things, speaking certain ways, singing certain songs. And we're getting better and better at this and we feel better and better about ourselves. But it's not true discipleship. So, um, I have referred to this as the new legalism. So let me give you an example. Modern evangelical Christianity is really good at theological articulation. They're really good at putting things into words and saying things. Historically, we have not been as good at that, right? They're good at it, we're not. But because of Christian education, we're getting better at it. And so I heard a man, well, a man said to me um, some time ago, he said, Dan, he said, I feel like my sons are more mature than I am. I said, really? Why do you think that? He said, you ought to hear the kinds of things that they can say, that they say when we talk and we have discussions at home. You ought to hear the kinds of things that they're able to explain out of the Bible. He said, you ought to hear the way they can pray. Christian maturity is not defined by words. It's not defined by the way we pray. It's not defined by the explanations we can give. But we're getting better and better at it. But that's not real maturity. Real maturity is a life of discipleship with Christ. It's learning how to say yes to God's spirit and no to the flesh. And I feel like more and more all the time, we're starting to feel satisfied with information instead of transformation. And so, again, technology plays a role in this. We know things so well. With a swipe of a finger, you can access information. And so we know things. Um, I was teaching in a church some time ago, and I... I gave a Bible trivia question, and uh, I don't know, 30 seconds later, a guy raised his hand, he had the answer. I'm like, wait a minute, you didn't know that. And uh, he's like, I just Googled it. I'm like, wow. So 
You know, what I'm trying to say is, is that we have information at our fingertips. And it's so easy to think that information is equivalent to relationship or to, to it's where it's at. But information is not transformation. And uh, I feel like we need to uh, be aware of this today, that um, modern Christianity uh, puts a lot of emphasis on this. There's a lot of cultural expressions, cosmetic expressions, surface level expressions. Um, but when you dig a little deeper, you find out there's not much substance there. There's not much life there. And we need to be real about that. And we need, we need to realize it. We need to help our children see it. And uh, we need to help our children understand what real maturity is. And so um, I think that these are probably some of the uh, greatest challenges. Oh, I got one more challenge, and it's financial sustainability. I, you know, we're all aware of this, that Christian education is, a, is an expensive proposition. We all know this. Uh, again, I wish there was a simple solution to this. I don't think there is. Um, but if Christian education is important as I, I think it is, um, we need to give more and more consideration to this as a church and making that a priority. And so, again, I don't know your church. I don't know your community around uh, down here as well. I don't know uh, how, how much the church is involved in sustaining Christian education but I think it's something to think about uh, as we move into the future. Uh, I get into discussions all the time with educators who say, oh, we could do this or we could do that. Oh, yeah, but resources are an issue. And so we could do a lot of things better if resources weren't as much of an issue. Um, in the public school, teachers will do one prep and they'll teach that one prep four or five times. In other words, they'll have one class that they'll teach maybe, you know, eighth grade biology or something, and they teach that, that one class to five, four or five sections, six sections in a day. Our teachers are laboring. Uh, a lot of our teachers have, well, I don't know how many preps, uh, but five, six, seven preps in a day. Um, and uh, they teach all day. And then when they're done, they're grading papers and, and uh, Burnout is a real thing. If we have resources, more resources, there's a lot more that could be done. We could do things better. So it's something to think about as we move into the future. Um, there's probably other challenges that maybe you thought of, um, but uh, these are the ones that came to mind. I am done.